You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This is Second Decade Off Topic. On July 16, 1980, possibly the most consequential event in the history of the modern world, took place in a suite on the 70th floor of the Detroit Plaza Hotel, across from the Joe Louis Arena. It's a bit of a cliché for historians to talk about turning points, but if you believe in that sort of thing, this definitely was one, and one of the biggest. That was the third night of the Republican National Convention, and the frontrunner for the Republican nomination for President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, and his senior campaign team were staying in a host of suites on the 69th and 70th floors. There was no surprise in store about the result of the convention. Reagan had been racking up primary victories for months, and he had more than enough delegates he needed to clinch the nomination. There was some uncertainty, though, concerning the vice presidential nomination. Reagan wanted the drama of announcing his VP pick at the convention itself, something that just isn't done anymore. And indeed, he hadn't actually made up his mind yet. Knowing this, an advisor to former President Gerald Ford had approached some of Reagan's campaign people with a highly unusual suggestion. Why shouldn't Reagan put Ford on the ticket as his vice president? That would certainly have made history. Ford, of course, came to the White House after the resignation of Richard Nixon in August 1974 in the wake of Watergate, but he was not elected. He succeeded Spiro Agnew, the former vice president who resigned in 1973 as a result of a tax scandal. Uh, Agnew's wrongdoing had nothing to do with Watergate, by the way. Anyway, Ford went on to run for election in his own right in 1976, but was defeated very narrowly by Jimmy Carter, the Democratic president who Reagan intended to defeat in 1980. Reagan, in fact, had challenged Ford for the Republican nomination in 1976 and came within a stone's throw of it. The power of the presidency, though, seemed to make a difference. Ford narrowly won the nomination, but lost the election. There was a hint of rematch about the proposed Reagan-Ford deal, but there were strings. Ford didn't want to be just any old vice president, which he'd already been. He wanted assurances from Reagan that if they got elected together, he, Ford, would have significant control over policy. For example, he demanded that Reagan choose Henry Kissinger as a secretary of state, and Ford would also have veto power over certain of Reagan appointees. Essentially, they were talking about a co-presidency, 
This was totally unprecedented in American history, never never been done before or even considered before. What's amazing about the Reagan Ford deal was not that it got proposed at all or even seriously considered, but that it almost happened. Reagan almost went for it. According to Dick Allen, who was high in the campaign, he later served as Reagan's national security advisor, Reagan had not even talked to any other potential VP candidates, at least not seriously. He didn't have any other backup plan other than Ford. And the talk started at 5.30 in the evening. Reagan was due on the convention floor in prime time to announce his VP pick. So what happened was this, long story short. The Reagan people and the Ford people went around and around, but they couldn't really make a deal that was acceptable to both of them. Ford wanted too much for Reagan to agree, and Reagan thought he was giving away the store. If they had made a deal, the presidency would have been an utter mess, considering that Reagan and Ford didn't agree on much and represented entirely different constituencies in the Republican Party. So as primetime neared and the deal fell apart, the Reagan campaign people started scrambling for an alternative. There were a couple names on their list, various milquetoast Republican politicians who have for the most part faded from history. The very last name on their list was George H.W. Bush. Now, Reagan didn't like Bush very much. Bush was also ran in the 1980 Republican race. He sharply criticized Reagan, especially on economic matters, calling Reagan's unusual economic theories, what we now call them supply-side economics. Anyway, Bush called those voodoo economics, a very famous phrase. Reagan was insulted by that, and also by the fact that Bush had refused to drop out long after it was clear that he had no shot at the nomination. Reagan was also offended that Bush was pro-choice on abortion. Given that Reagan's central core support came from evangelical Christians, he felt a pro-choice Veep candidate was an absolute non-starter. Dick Allen, remember he's a campaign manager, he claimed in an article that he wrote in the year 2000 for the Hoover Institute, He said that he secretly reached out to Bush while the Ford deal was still in talks. He put a question to Bush. Could he support the Republican Party platform without any reservations? The platform written by Reagan's people endorsed supply-side economics and came out strongly against a woman's right to choose. Bush knew this question meant, did he want to be vice president? Well, of course he did. When the Ford deal fell apart at the last minute and Reagan was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Allen told him that he thought they'd just better suck it up and accept George Bush, despite all his drawbacks. If Allen's account is accurate, Reagan made this decision in three minutes, between the time Ford walked out of the hotel room at 11.35 p.m. and the time Bush received the call at 11.38 p.m., with Reagan asking him to be on the ticket. Three minutes. What turned on that three-minute decision is so big, you can barely get your head around it. Bush was generally a pretty weak candidate. He demonstrated that both in his solo 1988 run for president, which we'll talk about in this episode. He won then, of course. But particularly, he he demonstrated his weakness in this 1992 re-election bid. In 1988, Bush was lucky that his Democratic opponent, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, was an even weaker candidate. Even assuming that a Reagan-Ford ticket could have won in 1980 and that Reagan would win re-election in 1984, If Bush had run for president in 1988, with his main credential being that he's the guy who came in a distant second for the nomination two elections ago, it's kind of hard to see how he would have gotten very far. If we hadn't had Bush, would the Persian Gulf War of 1991 turned out the way it did, or happened at all? The first Gulf War contained one of the seeds of 9-11. One of the stated reasons Osama bin Laden attacked the United States in 2001 
was that he was offended at the presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia, to which they were originally deployed in 1990 by Bush to defend Saudi from a potential attack by Saddam Hussein. More importantly, if the first Bush had never been president, it's very likely the second Bush would never have been either. That takes the second Iraq war off the table and changes almost everything else about our recent history. Without the Iraq war, Barack Obama would never have been president. No Obama, no Trump. Trump and Brexit, the departure of Britain from the European Union, and the shattering of the post-World War II Western alliance, those are two events that are closely linked. That probably would have gone differently. Or again, maybe never happened at all. You can make an argument that the whole of our modern history, for most of the last 40 years, hinged on that decision made in three minutes in a Detroit hotel room at the very beginning of the 1980s. This is how important the history of the 1980s is. If you listen to the main show, you know that I believe the 18-teens are a uniquely important time in the 19th century. If I had to choose what the most consequential decade is of the 20th century, I would undoubtedly choose the 1980s. Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens, and how that little studied period shaped the modern world. Once in a while, though, you got to spread your wings and branch out a bit. On Second Decade Off Topic, I'm going to give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, Off Topic is to Second Decade what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land gap. An unexpected extra. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Second Decade Off Topic. On this show, I usually cover the world as it was in the 18-teens, but in Off Topic, I go, well, Off Topic. Historical subjects outside the second decade of the 19th century. This is a special episode, even of Off Topic. This is part one of the Jake's 88 special. On January 15th, 2019, I'm releasing my new novel, which is called Jake's 88. You'll be able to find it on Amazon. In connection with the book, which I repeat is fiction, it's not history, I thought it might be fun to do some off-topic shows that are about history, specifically the history of the 1980s and why it matters. The process of writing Jake's 88 forced me back into the headspace of the 80s, which I lived through, but we now have enough distance from that time to be able to evaluate it historically. So, as I said, Jake's 88 is fiction. It's a coming-of-age romance about a young man growing up in middle America in the 1980s. As the title tells you, his name is Jake, and the book chronicles a year in his life, specifically the year 1988. Jake starts the book as a rather callow and forgettable 15-year-old, living in a place called Mandan City, which I'll tell you now is a fictional redress of Omaha. Jake's in high school, and his main preoccupations are smoking and heavy metal, but there's more going on in his head than it might seem at first. As he turns 16 over the next year, Jake's life comes unraveled. His dad is sent to prison, his dwindling circle of friends comes apart as a result of petty jealousies, but Jake begins to understand what love is like through a series of tumultuous relationships. The plot of Jake's 88, though, is almost inconsequential. My purpose in writing the book was to capture the cultural gestalt of the late 80s, particularly as it appeared to young people growing up in that era. Right now, we're 30 years out from the period the book takes place in, and we, our society, I mean, we're in the middle of a cultural reevaluation of the 80s. Previously, the 80s have been seen by most people as mainly a grab bag of pop culture tropes. 
When you think of the 1980s, most of us think of pop culture first. Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, The Cosby Show, breakdancing, neon clothes, that sort of thing. If you're a bit more historically minded, as I know most of my listeners are, you probably think of the historical trends that defined the decade. Ronald Reagan, conservatism, the end of the Cold War, rise of computers, capitalism, high finance, etc. But this perception is changing now. If you really delve into the history of the 80s, you begin to understand just how crucial it was and how closely linked it is to the way our modern world is right now. Let me give you an example, climate change. Recently, in late summer 2018, the New York Times Magazine did a very big article on how climate change got onto the public agenda and how principally the U.S. government lost its best chance to address global warming before we lock in some of the worst effects that now seem inevitable. Sea level rise, extreme weather events, and uh, things like that. The article, again, the New York Times Magazine article, this focuses on the decade between 1979 and 1989, which is a crucial decade in the history of climate change. The issue of climate change in the late 80s was closely linked to the oil crash. In 1986, global oil prices collapsed. This was partially as a result of increasing domestic production of oil by both the Soviet Union trying desperately to jumpstart their sagging economy, and also by the United States, which previously had been increasingly held hostage, literally in some cases, by hostile regimes in the Middle East, like Iran and eventually Iraq, both of whom had their fingers on the throttles of, of worldwide petroleum production. So those events are closely linked to things like the Iran-Iraq War, which was the longest and most destructive war of the 20th century, with the exception of the two world wars. That war bankrupted Saddam Hussein, which is why he invaded Kuwait in 1990, which led to the first Persian Gulf War. That event is closely connected to 9-11, and also obviously to the second Iraq War of 2003. That event led to the probably permanent decline of the U.S. as a global superpower, a decline still in progress also led to the rise of Barack Obama, which itself led to the rise of Donald Trump. So you see how tightly all these things are interconnected. This is why the 80s matters. It's more than Cindy Lauper and snap bracelets in the thriller video. But what we see in popular culture, the stuff I tried to capture in Jake's 88, that is related to the history of the 80s as well. It's a big part of it, and a big and important part, and all of this is integrated. Popular culture, especially as it related to teenagers and young people who grew up in the 1980s, is part of the reason why I wrote Jake's 88. One of the things you undoubtedly remember fondly, if you're anything close to my age, is John Hughes movies. You know them. Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We've seen them. We love them. Many of us Gen Xers, in fact, claim the vision of teenagers in the 80s, as portrayed by John Hughes, as reflecting our generational identity. Now, I always thought this was unfortunate. Now, just to warn you, I, I'm about to kill a sacred cow here. John Hughes and his teen comedies of the 80s, I, I think, as enjoyable as they are, and they are enjoyable, they actually do not reflect an accurate picture of what it was like to be a teenager in the 1980s. Now, I'll pause a moment and let the gasp of collective horror die down there. But the problem with John Hughes is that he was quite obviously not a teenager in the 80s. He was a teenager in the 1960s, not the 1980s. John Hughes, who died prematurely in 2009, he was born in 1950. He was your quintessential baby boomer. 
When he began making his coming-of-age teen comedies in 1984 with 16 Candles, Hughes applied a bit of hocus-pocus, half-marketing, half-myth-making that wound up distorting his and our view of what it was like to be a teenager in the 1980s. Hughes's pictures established the conceit, almost universal in the 1980s, that teenagers are essentially the same from decade to decade, accepting largely superficial things like the slang they use, the clothes they wear, and the music they listen to. His films argued that teenagers, at least in post-World War II America, were essentially timeless and unchangeable. Think about it. If you made 16 Candles not in 1984, but in 1955, it would be almost exactly the same movie, except with the Molly Ringwald character probably in a poodle skirt and the geek character wearing thick black glasses. Even Ferris Bueller's Day Off could have been made in the 50s, or at the outset mid-60s. Indeed, the quote-unquote timeless nature of Hughes' films are part of why they're so culturally significant, and why they're still watchable and enjoyable 30-35 years later. This is great filmmaking, but it's not very good history. Kids were not the same in 1984 as they were in 1955. In Hughes' films, teenagers are defined mostly by their cliques, but at heart they're generally good, fun-loving, and middle-America kids who are largely innocent in their experiences and optimistic in their outlooks. Even the Judd Nelson character from Breakfast Club, the, the criminal as they call him at the beginning, even he comes off kind of like this. He's a burnout and a troublemaker, but at the end of the picture, especially after he hooks up with Molly Ringwald, his character arc is about hope and redemption and optimism. My experience growing up in the 80s was that it was very hard to be optimistic, especially before about 1987 or 88, when Ronald Reagan was actively negotiating with the Soviets to end the arms race. Before that time, it was basically taken as an item of faith, especially among young people, that civilization was going to end in a nuclear holocaust, and that the outcome was imminent. This is why the TV movie The Day After, which was broadcast in November 1983, this movie depicted the immediate aftermath of a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. Anyway, this is why that movie was one of the biggest cultural events of the 1980s. Ironically, Ronald Reagan claimed in his memoirs that seeing The Day After, which had a special screening at the White House, he claimed the movie was what motivated him, or part of what motivated him, to start negotiating for an end to the Cold War. Let's take another 1980s TV event the science series Cosmos, which was created by Carl Sagan, a famous astronomer, that was syndicated on public television in 1980. In fact, the 13-part series was in progress right at the time of the election when Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter. If you watch Cosmos, the original, before, I'm talking, of course, this is before it was rebooted in 2014 by Neil deGrasse Tyson, but if you watch the original Cosmos, you'll see the specter of nuclear annihilation casting a very long shadow over the entire series. The last episode of Cosmos, in fact, is titled Who Speaks for Earth? And is specifically about the question of whether the human species will survive or will choose to annihilate itself in nuclear holocaust. The possibility of the world ending, the civilization ending, was at the core of our identities growing up in the 1980s. The Cold War certainly was a factor for people of Hughes's generation, the baby boomers, but they seemed to have processed it in a different way. The duck and cover drills of the 50s and 60s, where school kids were taught how to cower under their desks in the event of a nuclear war, well, that scarred a lot of kids from that era, so did the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
but it played out in a very different way. At the end of the 1960s, when the first baby boomers were going either to college or to Vietnam, there was a cultural clash that resulted. People opposed to the war stepped up and demonstrated. The older generation, the World War II generation, fell back on American values, what they saw as American values and exceptionalism. That's how we got Richard Nixon elected president in 1968. But there was, in both cases, a sense of ownership, a sense that whatever you did in 1968 mattered to what kind of country America was becoming. That sense of ownership, of mattering, was entirely missing from the generation that came of age in the 1980s. You'll notice that those of us who grew up in that era, we never had duck and cover drills. Even we, even as little kids, we knew it was pointless. If a nuclear war happened, everyone was going to die and there was nothing you could do about it. So there was a kind of nihilism inherent in growing up at this time. And stuff like the day after depicted our futures as most of us believed they would be. It's hard to talk about the 1980s without reference to eras that came before, especially the 1950s, and to a lesser degree the 1960s. It's already come up several times in this episode so far. There's definitely a connection between the 1950s and the 1980s, and a lot of parallels. Many, I venture to say most, of the people who voted for Ronald Reagan in 1980 and 1984 did so because they wanted to take the country back to something they perceived had existed before. Almost all of Reagan's political iconography incorporated this idea. His most famous campaign commercial, Morning in America from 1984, plays on this idea, the notion that Reagan and conservatism had brought America back to the way it should be, presumably after the turmoil and missteps of the 60s and 70s. Look closely at Morning in America. The first line of the ad is not, It's Morning in America. What it says is, it's morning again in America. Do you want to know what Reagan's campaign slogan was in 1980? Make America great again. Yep, that was his slogan. Make America great again. The not-so-implicit idea was that Jimmy Carter and the Democrats had screwed it up, but by 1984, when the Reagan image machine was used, still using that word again, it's morning again in America, that can only have had a broader historical meaning, suggesting that America had been better in the past, and Reagan brought us back to that condition, whatever it was, or whatever you like to think it was. What's interesting about this is how it almost subconsciously defines what that condition is and when it was. Reagan was a Republican, of course, but the last Republican president before him was Gerald Ford. When in the 80s you heard a slogan like, morning again in America, or make America great again, not a lot of people hear the word again and think back to the good old days of the Ford administration, circa 1975, when inflation was high, the economy was in recession, and the world situation extremely chaotic. Nor, I think, would a lot of people hear those slogans when think back to 1969, when Richard Nixon came to the White House. Indeed, very few Republicans in America would look back to 1969 as the good old days, because that was precisely the time of hippies, feminism, protest against Vietnam, all the cultural developments that made them the most uncomfortable. So almost instinctively, when you hear morning again in America, it's almost mandatory that you understand the last time it was supposedly morning in America, the last time America was great, was the 1950s. Eisenhower administration. 
Many people, at least from the vantage point of the 80s, very start of the 80s I'm talking about, fought back to the 50s as kind of idyllic, a time of economic prosperity, family building, living the good middle class life in the suburbs, a time before there was Vietnam, feminism, hippies, inflation, recession, or anything like that. Of course, that was just a perception. In the reality, the 50s were nothing like that. In fact, in many ways, the 50s were more chaotic and tumultuous than the 60s, though admittedly in a different way. Vietnam was going on throughout the 50s. The United States didn't get heavily involved until after the the defeat of the French at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, but the fuse of Vietnam was burning. Instead of hippies, in the 50s you had beatniks, Allen Ginsberg, people like that, and civil rights was ramping up, so there was just as much turmoil then as there was in the 1960s. But politics deals in perception, not reality. What the 50s were really like is less important, at least to a politician, than what people thought they were like. The pop culture of the 1980s was extremely good at recasting the past in nostalgic terms. Back to the Future, for example, which explicitly hammered that idea I was talking about earlier, that the only difference between young people in the 50s and young people in the 80s was the slang they used. This is a consistent joke in the Back to the Future films. Another example. Quick quiz. What's the most popular and beloved Christmas movie of all time? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. A Christmas Story, which came out in 1983. This film cast Christmas in sort of a hazy nostalgia, kind of an indeterminate 1940s holodeck. Even if you didn't grow up in in a small town in Indiana in the 40s, when you watch A Christmas Story, you almost start believing that you did. What was the most popular TV show of the 80s? The Cosby Show. The archetype of the wild and wacky Huxtable household was not the raucous satirical style of the 70s family sitcoms like Archie Bunker. No, not at all. The Cosby Show was basically a mashup of the Donna Reed Show, Father Knows Best, and Leave It to Beaver, all 50s shows, except they're set this time in 1980s Manhattan. The racial dimensions of The Cosby Show are also very interesting. African-American characters and families had been hits on network TV before, but Cosby was qualitatively different. The best way to get at this is to quote a 1989 article by media critic Henry Louis Gates. If your memory needs jogging, recall that the Huxtable family on The Cosby Show, they're solidly upper-middle class, living in an expensive brownstone in Manhattan. So Gates wrote this, and again, he's writing in 1989, quote, As long as all blacks were represented in demeaning or peripheral roles, it was possible to believe that American racism was, as it were, indiscriminate. The social vision of Cosby, however, reflecting the minuscule integration of blacks into the upper middle class, having, quote, white money, as my mother used to say, rather than colored money, reassuringly throws the blame for black poverty back onto the impoverished. This is the subliminal message of America's weekly dinner date with the Huxtables, played out to a lesser extent in other weekly TV encounters with middle-class black families, such as 227, A Different World, Amen, Sherman Helmsley is a Lawyer, and with isolated black individuals, such as the dashing Blair Underwood on L.A. Law and Philip Michael Thomas on Miami Vice. One principal reason for the failure of Flip Wilson's Charlie and Company was the ambiguity of his class status. Wilson's character, Charlie Richmond, was an office worker at the Department of Highways, his wife, Gladys Knight, a schoolteacher. Wilson once joked acidly that he was the star of the black version of The Cosby Show, 
which may have been true in ways that he did not intend. End quote. Remember, that was Henry Louis Gates writing in 1989. Of course, today we have a very different view of The Cosby Show, a much darker one. As I make this podcast, Bill Cosby, once called America's Dad, is sitting in prison for rape. Cosby's long history of drugging and sexually assaulting women stretches all the way back to 1965. Many of his victims, some of them told their stories years ago but weren't believed, many of his victims were women who were somehow associated with The Cosby Show, guest stars and such, or hoping to be cast as guest stars. You can't watch The Cosby Show today without thinking about the monstrous things that were going on while it was being made, just like you can't watch Woody Allen's Manhattan without thinking about his very long and very troublesome history. We were programmed not to think about this kind of thing back in the 80s, and it's still hard to, hard to come to terms with 30 years later. I'm talking in terms of both sexual harassment and sexual assault and also racial dynamics. Back to race in the 80s, in my novel, Jake's 88, the protagonist, Jake, is white. He's from an upper-middle-class upper family, or at least their upper-middle-class at the beginning of the book, and his circle of friends in his world is exclusively white. Omaha, the city on which I base the fictional Mandan city in the novel, was extremely segregated in the 80s. Still is, really. Part of the story of Jake's coming of age in his segregated Midwestern city in 1988 is how he encounters race and questions of race in his relatively narrow world. Portraying the racial dynamics of this kind of world at that time was pretty challenging from a writing perspective. 1988 was before Rodney King, before the OJ trial, and long before Trayvon Martin and Black Lives Matter. Yet all of those things, all of the underlying factors behind those events, all of them were going on in the 80s, just as they are in our own time. In May 1980, Miami erupted into three days of rioting which killed 18 people and caused $100 million in property damage. This riot was basically a prequel to the Rodney King incident. It was caused, just like that one, by the acquittal of white police officers in causing the death of a black man, Arthur McDuffie, who they pursued allegedly for running a red light, clearly an excessive force incident just like so many in the years since. The Miami riots of 1980 were the deadliest incidents of racial violence in American history between the 1960s, the era of riots and unrest that Reagan voters were eager to get away from, and the Los Angeles riots of 1992, which happened on the watch of President George H.W. Bush. Bush himself had a complicated relationship with race. The presidential campaign of 1988, when Bush defeated Governor Michael Dukakis, it's mentioned several times in Jake's 88, particularly in its later stretches. One of the few things that almost everyone remembers from that campaign was the infamous Willie Horton ad. This was a TV commercial ginned up by a political action committee, supposedly unconnected to Bush's campaign, featuring the mugshot of a convicted murderer named William Horton, who apparently never used the name Willie. This fellow, real piece of work, he was convicted of a particularly gruesome murder in 1974 and sentenced to life in prison. In 1986, he was given a weekend pass from prison, a furlough program designed to help rehabilitate inmates. Now, this program was controversial in Massachusetts at the time, although it was not, contrary to what Bush would have you believe, initiated by Dukakis. Anyway, Horton committed a brutal rape while on this weekend pass. Horton was African-American and his victims were white. The TV ad, which I repeat again used Horton's face, painted Dukakis as soft on crime, but it was clearly appealing to racial fears of its predominantly white audience. 
While the original commercial was not run by the Bush campaign itself, the Bush people did do a takeoff on it, an ad featuring a revolving door which hit out a Dukakis on the furlough program without mentioning Horton's name or showing his face. Clearly, the Horton thing didn't do Dukakis any favors, but I don't think it sank him single-handedly. Dukakis was an extremely weak candidate, I said that before, and Democrats had almost no excuse for nominating him, particularly after the epic clowning that 1984 candidate Walter Mondale got. Even in the late 80s, the Democrats were still running campaigns like it was 1972, hoping to get those hard-hat and steel-lunch-pail-type voters, who were mostly white, to pull the lever for them without realizing that most of those people had gone over to Reagan in 1980 and weren't coming back. Reagan Democrats, they were called. Dukakis blew himself up, without Bush's help, on two cringeworthy occasions. The first was when he visited a General Dynamics plant in Michigan on September 13, 1988, hoping to counter the image the Republicans were painting of him that he was soft on defense. As a photo op, Dukakis got to ride around in an Abrams tank. The problem wasn't so much the tank. The problem was the helmet. He looked absolutely ridiculous, kind of like a human cartoon character, and the Bush people had a heyday of making fun of him. Not sure how much putting on a funny hat says about your capabilities as commander-in-chief, but it did look really dumb. No one who saw the pictures of Dukakis in the tank can ever forget them. The second instance of self-immolation came about a month later in a debate with Bush. Now this is mentioned in Jake's 88. Jake sees the debate replay on a TV in the background while he's getting ready for a date. Anyway, at the debate, CNN anchor Bernard Shaw threw out the first question to Dukakis. Not in these words, but basically, Governor Dukakis, first imagine that your wife is brutally raped and murdered, and then tell me you wouldn't support the death penalty for the killer. I mean, my God, think about that question. You're a politician, you're running way behind in the polls, you're on live television in front of millions of people, the vice president of the United States is standing a few feet away, now, amidst all that pressure, go ahead and imagine the person you care about most in the world dying a horrible death. The question was bad enough, but Dukakis' answer was worse, if you can believe it. Instead of blowing up with righteous indignation at the question, he launched into his wonky answer about his lifelong opposition to the death penalty. It didn't humanize Dukakis. He could have knocked it out of the park on that one with an impassioned response to what was clearly a below-the-belt question, but he just didn't do it. The question was also very sad if you know anything about uh, Dukakis's wife, Kitty. During the 1988 campaign, Bush's campaign manager, Lee Atwater, started a completely groundless rumor that Kitty Dukakis had burnt an American flag back in the 60s. The symbology of patriotism was a major theme in Bush's campaign. Not the substance of patriotism, like, you know, what do these symbols stand for, but the symbols themselves. Would you burn a flag? Will you say the Pledge of Allegiance? That sort of thing. In any event, the rumor was ridiculous. Kitty Dukakis did not burn a flag in the 60s. Anyway, she had a hard time dealing with the pressures of her husband running for president. She was battling alcoholism at the time, and her story is pretty gripping. I read her memoir about it called Now You Know. Not long after the campaign was over, she was hospitalized after gulping down a bottle of rubbing alcohol. That's pretty much the final frontier in alcoholism when you get to stuff like that. Fortunately, Kitty is still alive and sober. It's hard not to look back at the 1988 election and conclude that Kitty's husband was totally out of his depth. As I said at the beginning, Bush was a weak candidate, but he was lucky, mainly lucky, that Dukakis was even weaker. 
Dukakis should have been able to take advantage of Bush's most disastrous misstep and one that could really have shaken the public's, the voting public's faith in his judgment. In the first major decision of his campaign, the first major decision as a leader in his own right, Bush chose as his vice presidential running mate Dan Quayle, rookie senator from Indiana who very much resembled the Robert Redford character from Michael Ritchie's 1972 movie The Candidate. Ironically, Dan Quayle admitted that The Candidate was his favorite movie. In the eyes of most people, Quayle did not have presidential gravitas. He may not have been completely the dullard that the press portrayed him as, but he wasn't any good at convincing voters that he knew what the hell he was doing. A number of problems erupted as soon as Bush announced him. Chief among them were questions about Quayle's military service in the Indiana National Guard during Vietnam. That age-old question, did he dodge the draft? People don't generally realize this. I didn't make much of it myself until I looked it up, specifically Quayle's birth date. But Dan Quayle was the first baby boomer ever to appear on a presidential ticket. Consequently, he was the first candidate on a presidential ticket to face electoral problems involving either his military service, or lack thereof, during the Vietnam War, or some other conduct in his or her past involving the Vietnam era. Every single boomer on a ticket since then has faced this same kind of question. We associate it most strongly with Bill Clinton, whose campaign in 1992 was badly hurt by draft dodger accusations. The same kind of question came up again in 2000 and 2004 when the second Bush, who famously deserted from the Air National Guard in Texas during the Vietnam War, and it's still an issue today regarding the current occupant of the Oval Office. Note that Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump were all born in the year 1946. Hillary Clinton, whose on-campus activism during the Vietnam era became an issue in her presidential campaign, she was born in 1947, the same year as Dan Quayle. Baby boomers in presidential politics were a new thing, terra incognita in 1988. In a way, I guess you can't blame Bush or Quayle for not foreseeing that, would, that it would be an issue. Quayle was the first one to have to walk that tightrope. Quayle had more drawbacks, whether or not he was an intellectual lightweight, he didn't speak very well, and he tended to make embarrassing gaffes and non-sequiturs on a regular basis. His launch as Bush's VP candidate was disastrously botched, but there was no way that Bush could admit that, so he was forced to pretend like everything was going swimmingly. Dukakis had this perfect opportunity dropped right in his lap, one of the very few he would ever be given in that campaign, but he couldn't convert on it. Even when the whole country laughed at Quayle after Dukakis' vice presidential nominee, Lloyd Benson of Texas, fired one of the most memorable one-liners in American political history at him, I'm talking, of course, about your no Jack Kennedy, Dukakis still couldn't make Quayle an issue. Dukakis was about as disappointing as presidential candidates get. Yet, what was most amazing about the 1988 election is that it wasn't even more of a lopsided victory for Bush. Despite his drawbacks, Dukakis scored a 111 electoral vote, which was considerably better than Mondale had done in 1984, and he got 45% of the popular vote, which was higher than the percentage Bill Clinton got when he defeated Bush in 1992. It was a really weird election, at least by the standards of the time. There was a sense of absurdity about it, particularly the fact that there were so few substantive issues in the campaign. It wasn't really about crime or defense or budget priorities or the economy, but it was about identity. Are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? And about symbology, the flags, and that sort of thing. No one had ever been through an election like that before. 
a lot of people on both sides of the political divide felt that it was kind of surreal and cheap. In the decades since 1988, presidential elections have gotten far more surreal than that one in many different ways, but this was the first time that America collectively experienced that kind of feeling. It also felt kind of immaterial in a weird way. Reagan had been politically hobbled by the Iran-Contra scandal, and he hadn't taken very many consequential actions in his last year and a half in office, with the notable exceptions of the treaties with the Soviet Union. In point of fact, Reagan at this time was slowing down. Many witnesses claimed that there were early signs of his Alzheimer's disease even before he left office. After he did leave office in January 1989, Reagan was very rarely seen in public and his health grew increasingly frail. Of course, he died of Alzheimer's in 2004. When Bush took over as president on January 20, 1989, very little changed, at least outwardly. There was no sense of newness or freshness or excitement in a new course the country was embarking on. It was just kind of dull. Whether you agreed with him politically or not, George Bush didn't kindle a lot of excitement, exactly the opposite of both his predecessor and the man who eventually succeeded him. Yet somehow Bush stands in many ways at the peak of 80s history, this dull little bearing on which a lot of our modern history turns. I'll be doing another episode in the 80s series in the run-up to the release of Jake's 88. It's going to be another uh, second decade off-topic. Remember, my book, Jake's 88, is coming out on Amazon on January 15th. It'll be available in both ebook and paperback formats. You probably already listened to Second Decade, the main podcast. I try to drop these off-topic episodes at the same time as uh, uh, main ones. So as usual, if you like the show, please do click those little stars on iTunes. Five would be very nice, and leave a review. You can become a Patreon uh, supporter on my on my page. That's patreon.com slash Sean Munger. Love my Patreon supporters. I have a public Facebook page. Look for Sean the History Guy. Sorry, I don't use Twitter anymore, but I do have a YouTube channel. Oh, the believers in the Oak Island buried treasure nonsense have been having quite a go at me lately on YouTube, but it's all in good fun. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. The theme music for Off Topic is called Stealth Groover by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.